We'll continue our study of Mark chapter five uh, with the story of Jesus saving two women, verses 21 to 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. and She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, came from the the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not allow anyone except Peter uh, to follow him, except Peter, James, and John, brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the gospel of the Lord. So once again, we are confronted by a literary device, which we've seen a couple times in Mark's gospel, the Markin sandwich. If you remember this, the concept is that Mark starts telling a story to us and then interrupts that story with a second story, which is supposed to inform the first story. And then he concludes the first story. And so that's what we see here with Jairus's daughter and the woman who was subject to bleeding for 12 years. Uh, We're supposed to see the story of the woman informing what we learn about Jairus's daughter. And so I want to look at the text in a couple ways uh, today. I want to, first of all, look at the whole story of the raising of Jairus's daughter and pull out some things from that story. Then I want to look at the woman who is subject to bleeding, pull some things out of that story. And then finally, I want to take the whole of the text and look at the connections between these two stories so we can see the bigger picture of what uh, Mark is trying to do with this gospel text. And it is a text that is beautiful. Um, so if, uh, if I have to convince you that this message is worth the price of your attention, um, this is the culmination of a longer section of what Mark has been doing since the beginning of chapter four. He's been building up to these two stories to give you the message of grace from God to you. So stick with me as we go through these texts. First, we'll, we'll work through uh, what happened with Jairus's daughter. 
So after Jesus had come back from the, sea, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where he had been serving uh, that man who was possessed by a legion of demons, a synagogue ruler named Jairus comes to him and says, my daughter is dying. And so can you please come with me and put your hands on her so that she can be healed? And so Jesus agrees. He's on his way with Jairus to, her, to his house. When all of a sudden a woman reaches out, touches him, Jesus notices it and then stops and, and tries to find this woman. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Jairus in that moment? You've been suffering along with your daughter. Any of you who are parents know that when your child is feeling pain, you almost vicariously experience pain with them. And so their last hope, their last ditch effort was to find Jesus. And then Jesus agreed. Like he's coming. He's going to come put his hands on her so that she's going to be healed. And then all of a sudden, it seems like he's distracted. Like he was on his way and now he's searching for this woman in the crowd. Like, doesn't he know my daughter is dying? Some of you have lost a child. You know exactly what Jairus was feeling in that moment. Why didn't Jesus keep going to see Jairus' daughter? Be sure that that woman, she had a problem, but it wasn't as big a deal as what was happening with Jairus' daughter. I mean, she was dying. This woman had a chronic illness, but but it wasn't killing her. Maybe sometimes we feel the same way about God. We look at our life and we see the things that we think should be fixed on a certain timetable, but they aren't getting fixed. We almost wonder, has God forgotten about me? Is, is God distracted? Is there something else that's taking his attention? Because I've got this problem and it's really big and he's doing nothing about it, it seems. What this text is, is trying to get us to realize is that Jesus doesn't work on my timetable all the time. And while it may not have been the loss of a child for you, every one of us has experienced something in our life where Jesus hasn't worked on our timetable. Maybe it wasn't the loss of a child for you, but it was the loss of a close friend, a sibling, or a parent. It happened too quickly. It happened before it ever should have happened. Maybe it wasn't the loss of a person in your life. Maybe it was the loss of your physical comfort. You, you got a disease or a chronic pain that came way earlier than you thought it would. And you've been suffering with it. And you've been wondering, why, why doesn't God fix it? Maybe it was a loss of money. You had a plan for how you were going to make money, how much you were going to have in order to save for retirement. But because of maybe something that was in your control or something that was totally outside of your control, all of a sudden, that wealth isn't there anymore. Or maybe it's not something that happened too early, but something that hasn't happened yet. Maybe you're looking for a relationship with someone who is going to say that you're their, their person. And yet that person hasn't shown up yet. And you're trying to be faithful as a single person to God, but it's tough. Why isn't God working on my timetable? Maybe you look at the world and you wish that the end of these lockdowns would have come six months or, or 12 months ago because you see the destruction that it's having maybe in your family or your community or just the city and country at large. Why doesn't Jesus work on our timetable? That's a question I think we've all asked ourselves. Well, the text gives us an answer to it. The answer is the story is bigger than you. It's easy for all of us to sort of get narrow focus kind of like Jairus. 
My daughter, my problem, I'm feeling this, Jesus, why aren't you fixing this? But what Jesus sees is a bigger story. He sees that this woman needs him at this moment. And so he's not going to go be with Jairus' daughter. And I think that's something for all of us to consider. That whenever Jesus doesn't work on my timetable, it's because he's doing something for someone else. Maybe that someone else is another person. Maybe it's just a future version of myself. But Jesus is always doing something else because the story is bigger than me. What if the reason that Jesus allowed your child to be taken from you before their time was because that child was going to lose their faith later in life. And Jesus didn't want that to happen. What if the reason God took that child from you was so that you would be so obsessed with seeing that child again, that you would never forget about God and his word, that you would stick with God throughout your life so that when you die, you can go be with your child again. What if the reason that God isn't giving you somebody in your life to marry is because God wants to focus you on other things right now so that he can grow you into a person who's actually going to be a good spouse for whoever that is. Or maybe he's using you as an example to someone who's a little bit younger than you, who's seeing you go through singleness as a godly person. And that's going to inspire them to live their single life. Maybe God gave you that chronic pain a little bit earlier in life So like the apostle Paul, you would have a thorn in your flesh to keep you humble. Maybe he took away your wealth earlier than you expected so that you would fully rely on him. I don't know. It could be any number of these things, but the story is bigger than you. But that's not enough because that's just consolation. I can't imagine that if you've lost a child or a loved one or your way of life, that it's enough for Jesus, Jesus to say, yeah, but you know, I did something for somebody else. Like that's nice, but that doesn't fix the problem, does it? That's why Christianity is so awesome. Because Christianity doesn't just offer consolation. It offers restoration. And it's completely unique in that. The promise of the Christian faith is that all the things that are evil and wrong and broken and sinful about this world, Jesus is going to undo them. He's going to undo them at the end of the world when he recreates heaven and earth the way it was always supposed to be, a place he calls the new heavens and the new earth and where he brings us. And he tells us about what it's going to be like. Later in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, he says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will, ref- will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. See, Jesus doesn't promise just consolation. He promises restoration. Whatever you've lost, he says, I'm not just going to give it back to you. I'm going to give it back to you a hundredfold. Whatever pain you felt, he's going to undo it. As C.S. Lewis said in one of his books, it's it's like everything sad is going to come untrue. And that's the hope of the Christian faith. It's amazing to me how few Christians know that that's our hope. We have this idea that that heaven is the place we're going to be forever. This ethereal, like cloud-like existence where we're, we're singing hymns to God and, and that's sort of it. And, and that's not the hope of the Christian faith. The hope of the Christian faith is a restoration of all things. And then on the last day, when the trumpet sounds, Jesus will come back and he will raise us to life and he will give us a life that never ends. 
And that's exactly what what Jesus did for Jairus' daughter, didn't he? Even though it wasn't on Jairus' timetable, Jesus still came and he rose that, that child from the dead as a picture of what he is going to do for all the times that we thought he wasn't working on our timetable. So let's see it happen. When he gets to the house, the text tells us that he saw them all and said, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Jesus says that, that when a Christian ends their life, it shouldn't even rightly be called death. It should be called sleep. Now think about sleep. What is sleep? It's, it's turning off your, your nervous system in a sense, that your, your understanding of what's going on outside of you, but you don't die, you continue on. And you fully expect that you're going to wake up the next morning into a new day with new opportunities, with a refreshed soul, a restored body, because even medical professionals will tell you sleep is one of the best things you can do for your body. And you're going to be you the next day because, well, that's how sleep works. And in saying that, Jesus tells us what the resurrection will be like. That when Christians die, their sight turns off for a little while. They aren't aware of what's happening around them in the world, but they continue to live. And when Jesus comes back and pulls us out of our grave, he will wake us up in a sense with refreshed bodies, not just a little bit better than they were yesterday or a little less tired, but completely glorified, remade, perfect in every way. See, in this, Jesus shows us the way that Christians ought to see death, just like sleep. And the church has held on to that. As you read the epistles of the apostles later in the New Testament, they refer to death as sleep because to them, it's as simple as getting in your bed at night. Death is not something to be feared. But they laughed at him. As he said that, as he announced the hope of this glorious resurrection, that everything bad was going to be fixed, they laughed at him. Maybe you've had a similar experience. You share the glory of your faith. You know the promises that Jesus has given you, that he's proved by his resurrection. You see the evidence of it, not just in the scriptures, but in history in general, that this really happened and it means everything for you. And you try to have a conversation about it with somebody, but, but they laugh at you or they dismiss you or they scoff or they don't want to talk about it. It's a really discouraging thing. First of all, you should know that Jesus went through exactly the same thing. When he announced the resurrection that he himself was going to bring, people laughed at him. But then what I think is powerful is what he does next. He doesn't bring the guy from the Gerasenes to show his power over the demonic realm. He doesn't get his disciples to vouch for him that he calmed the storm. He doesn't lay out a logical argument from the Old Testament about how he's the fulfillment of all prophecies. He doesn't even say, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm the son of God. He doesn't do any of that. What he does is just goes and does the work. The text tells us that he put them all out, took the child's father, mother, and disciples in with him. And then he takes her by the hand and says to her, Talitha Kum. And sometimes I wonder if that's our problem as well. We know the message, but our life doesn't match it. We're willing to say the words, but we're not willing to do the work. I wonder if you can think back to the last time you shared your faith with somebody. You told them about the message of the resurrection. Do you think maybe they looked at your life and they wondered if it was really true based on the way that you act? 
Sometimes I think our witness is clear in our words, but our witness is not clear in our actions. We want to convince people of the arguments because we want to be right, but we don't actually believe it ourselves. Tell me, if we, if we talk like people who don't believe in Jesus and we drink like people who don't believe in Jesus and we watch porn like people who don't believe in Jesus and we argue about politics like people who don't believe in Jesus, why would anyone think this message is life-changing? Sometimes I think our, our witness needs to be powered by a changed life. Jesus, of course, is the one who gives that power. He's the one who gives that resurrection. And so ultimately, as we go back to him and we realize that our hope is in the resurrection of the dead, then we'll find out that we can live a completely different way. If I know that my life is not going to end, but I'm just going to continue on in an even better existence than I know right now, and that all of it is certain, and even right now I've been given part of that inheritance, would I live the same way as everybody else? Or would I live a completely changed life that shows the message that I believe? Jesus says, Talitha kum to this little girl. Words that I probably could preach a whole sermon on, but for now, I'll just give you two brief points. First of all, it's in Aramaic, which again is a reminder that this is eyewitness testimony. Peter was there. He saw it and that moment was so powerful for him that he remembered exactly what Jesus said and he told Mark to write it down. But secondly, it's, it's tender. And one commentator I read on this text says that saying Talitha kum is like the same kind of thing a father would say to his little daughter when he wakes her up from a nap. Honey, it's time to get up. Like in the moment when, when Jesus is exhibiting the greatest power on the face of the earth, the ability to undo death, he has the tenderness of a father wake up his little daughter from a nap. Honey, it's, it's time to get up. And on that last day, the end of the age, When the trumpet blast comes and this world is laid bare, Jesus will have that same tenderness with you. When his power is on full display, he will come to your grave and he will take you by the hand and he will say, honey, it's time to get up. Because there's a new day where everything is made right. Now, as we finish the text, I want to give you just a couple linguistic things that bring this alive. First of all, I want you to focus on those words, get up. In Greek, that's the word agairo, a word that the angel will use later to describe what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday. As he says to the women, he is not here, he is risen. And in the very next verse, it tells us that immediately the girl stood up. The word there is the Greek word anastemi, which is where we get actually our English girl's name, Anastasia, which is the Greek word for resurrection. And so really literally what this text says is Jesus came to her and said, little girl, I say to you, be risen. And immediately the girl was resurrected. See what Jesus is showing here is the power that he has over death, which he promises to every one of us. And one last thing then, in the very last verse of the text, it says that they were completely astonished. The Greek word here is ekstemi. It's to stand outside yourself, literally. We might say in English, to be beside oneself. And that's a powerful colloquialism for what it means to be completely astonished. But I wonder if the literal meaning wasn't in view here for Mark. That when you see the resurrection, when you understand what it is, you understand the power that Jesus has over death. It almost takes you outside of yourself to give you a completely different perspective on life. It, it takes off the blinders. It unplugs you from the matrix. It, it rises you above the fog of the way the world works so that you can see that, that the things that people worry about day to day, they're not worth worrying about for a Christian. 
The way that people act is idolatrous of themselves or of money or of pleasure or of success. And yet you can live at a a higher level than that because you've been taken outside of yourself. Does the resurrection do that to you? Does it, does it ravish you? Does it blow your hair back? Does it surprise you and make you say, wow. If not, I don't think you understand it. The resurrection is, is like plugging your soul into a power source that will light you up for the way you live your life. So that's the story of Jairus's daughter. Let's talk about the story of the woman. We find out that this woman has had a flow of blood for 12 years. It's probably related to her period, although we don't know for sure. But in any case, it was a medical issue, and she had gone to multiple doctors, spent all that she had to try to get it fixed, and it wasn't getting better. In fact, it was getting worse. And so as Jesus is traveling to go see Jairus' daughter, she comes up behind him, reaches out, and touches his cloak. That woman who was living through those 12 years of bleeding, was experiencing something that maybe we can identify with in a small way. See, in the Old Testament law, a flow of blood of any kind was considered ceremonially unclean. So, not only was this a physical ailment for this woman, but it was also a spiritual ailment. Because she was constantly ceremonially unclean, she was not able to worship with with her people because God had said a person who is ceremonially unclean cannot worship with my people. But it wasn't just a physical ailment and a spiritual ailment. It was also a social ailment because since she was ceremonially unclean, anyone she came near and touched would also become ceremonially unclean. And so she had to announce to the people that she was around, I am ceremonially unclean, don't touch me. We've experienced about a year and a half of physical distancing, but we've still been able to live with our families. We had part of last summer where we were able to see each other for a while. This woman was in the ultimate physical distancing for 12 years. Her suffering was was terrible. And and so she comes to Jesus as her last hope. And she approaches him by coming from behind and grabbing just part of his cloak. Why do you think she did it that way? Like, why don't you think she came like Jairus and just said, Jesus, I've had this flow of blood for 12 years. Would you please help me? Or why didn't she just call out to him from the crowd? Why do you think she came behind and, and barely graced the edge of his cloak? I think I can give you three possible reasons. There might be more. On the one hand, I think maybe she was just embarrassed. Like she was ceremonially unclean. She didn't want to have to announce to everybody in this huge crowd and to Jesus that she's ceremonially unclean. Maybe she was experiencing some level of trauma. I mean, after 12 months, or excuse me, 12 years, excuse me, of of being physically separated from other people, It's going to have an effect on you as a person who knows what her social skills were like, who knows what her self-esteem was like, who knows what sort of mental things she was dealing with. She felt almost like she couldn't. Or maybe she just felt unworthy. She saw Jairus and Jairus was a synagogue ruler. Jesus listened to him probably because Jairus was a synagogue ruler. She thought, why would he ever want to help me? And so she thought, if I can just barely touch him, that'll be enough. That's, that's what I need. And then Jesus healed her. 
like, like power came out from him, even from the touching of his clothes to heal her. And so there's some really powerful implications of that. First of all, we have to understand that, that Jesus' power, his grace, his salvation is already ours. Jesus already gave himself to us. Some people think you have to ask Jesus into your heart or ask him for power, or ask him for forgiveness. No, he's already given it to you. And that's evidenced by the fact that she could just touch him and power would come out from him. She didn't have to come to him and say, Jesus, please. She could just touch him and the, the power healed her in that moment. And I think some of you need to hear that. Because you keep Christianity, Jesus, his church at arm's length. Maybe it's because you're embarrassed. Maybe it's because there's something in your life that makes you feel unclean. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's something that somebody did to you, but the idea of bringing it up in a public space or even to God just makes you feel despicable. Maybe you're dealing with something with some trauma or or a mental illness that makes you feel like "I, I could never fit in. I would never be wanted by a community like that. Or maybe you're worried that if people knew about how you struggled with anxiety or bipolar or or something like this, that, that they wouldn't want you around. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety about the idea of coming back to being in a building with other people. Or maybe you just plain feel unworthy. You just look at your life and you say, God could never love a person like me. A church could never love a person like me. Here's what you need to know. Jesus already gave himself for you. There's nothing that you have to do to to get forgiveness and cleanliness from God. The little reach out that you're doing right now as you listen to my voice, that is promising you the full forgiveness of sins and welcome into God's family. It's all yours. There's nothing you have to do for it. There's no level of behavior you have to reach or no questions you have to ask, no prayers you have to say, no candles you have to light. It's all yours. It's already given to you. You are fully forgiven, fully loved, fully accepted, fully promised, everything that God has for you. That's the amazing message of the gospel. But that's not all. Because what does Jesus do next? Jesus searches the crowd for her. I suppose it could have been enough for Jesus to feel the power go out from him and then continue on his way to go see Jairus, Jairus' daughter. She was dying anyways. But, but he stopped the whole thing and, and turned around and looked for this woman. He says, who touched me? And, and in Greek, he, he uses a feminine pronoun. He actually knows it's a woman. He just wants to see her. Why? Be, because he wants to know her and, she wants to, and he wants her to know that she's known. He wants to look her in the eye because you can imagine after 12 years of being ceremonially unclean, there hadn't been that many people who had looked her in the eye. He wanted to show compassion to her because you can imagine after 12 years of, of being ceremonially unclean, there were many who were not showing compassion to her. He wanted to show tenderness when all the people around her or the doctors that she worked with were not showing that tenderness. And he wanted to do one more thing. He wanted to speak to her. He wanted to say, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Why? Because I wonder if she didn't really believe it right away. Like it was like a dream for her. 
She felt the power come into her and she felt the healing, but, but it's been 12 years. I wonder if she pinched herself a little bit to make sure that it was real. Well, Jesus came in and spoke to her and announced her, yes, it is real. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And that's what Jesus wants for you too. Whether you generally hold church at arm's length or Jesus at arm's length, or whether it's close to you, Jesus wants you to know and to be known. God wants you to have someone who will look you in the eyes with tenderness and compassion and love and interest to know who you are, despite maybe all the things that are messed up about you. And who will be there to speak God's words to you, words of pardon and peace, that you have been healed, you've been saved, you've been forgiven in Jesus' name. That it's not just an idea, it's a reality. It, it really happened. We all saw it because we were all together. And so I hope that whoever you are, you, you find that Christian community. That when we're allowed to gather back into this building together, that you will be here to be known and to know. That you'll make time for a life group so that every week you can have a, a specific group of people who you know and who know you. Because Jesus was willing to stop this entire thing, to even put off a resurrection in order to make sure this woman knew that she was known. So that's the story of the woman with the flow of blood. Now I want you to see some big picture ideas. The first big picture idea of the the whole text is this idea that they fell at Jesus' feet. We see a refrain that comes through the stories that Mark has told us, not just these two, but also before this in chapter four, uh, that Jesus had people falling at his feet. Maybe you remember the demoniac who, when he saw Jesus at a distance, ran and fell on his knees in front of him. The synagogue ruler Jairus in the text for today, who, when he came to Jesus and saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And this woman who knowing what happened to her came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. Mark continues to use the same phrase over and over again to remind us that Jesus is the son of God and the proper reaction to him is to fall at his feet. But there's one story in which this phrase is noticeably absent. It's way back in chapter four with the disciples in the boat when Jesus calmed the sea. They were terrified, but they didn't fall at his feet. In fact, they questioned, they said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And I wonder if Mark isn't making a subtle jab to those of us who are closest to Jesus. This woman, the synagogue ruler, the demons, they all recognized Jesus for exactly who he was. But those disciples who were walking and talking with him, who were with him every day, they were left questioning. For those of us who are lifelong or mostly lifelong Christians, this is something we need to ask ourselves. Do we still fall at Jesus' feet? Do we realize who he is and what he's done? Or have we gotten comfortable with him? Or maybe have we started even to doubt him? The proper response to Jesus is to fall at his feet, to fall at his feet in regular repentance, regular worship, regular prayer. Do you do that? Secondly, we see physical faith. Jairus comes to Jesus and doesn't say, Jesus, just say the word and my daughter will be healed. We know Jesus could have done it. That's actually exactly what he did for another man who asked Jesus to heal his servant. 
And the woman doesn't just pray that Jesus will heal her. She feels the need to go and touch him. She could have just prayed. Think of the lepers. Jesus healed lepers without ever touching them. So why does Mark make a big deal that both these women touched Jesus? Because he wants you to realize that the Christian faith is necessarily physical. Now understand, you can get the Christian faith from words. The Bible is clear. God's words are the source of everlasting life. But that's not the only thing that God gives us. He gives us also a physical faith, a tangible faith, a touchable faith. He gives us a faith that reaches out and and grabs Jesus physically because our problem is physical. Let me ask you this. Some of you are thinking about, or maybe I've already gotten the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Is it okay for the, the physician to show you the vaccine and talk about it, but not put it in your arm? Of course not, because COVID is a physical problem. You need a physical solution. Jesus gives you a physical solution. He gives you the ability to touch him, to hold him, to taste him with bread and wine. And I wonder if we believe that. I wonder if we believe that we're physically dying and we need a physical antidote. Or if we just think that Christianity is a nice spiritualism that makes us feel happy for a little while. Over the pandemic, we've been offering multiple communion services on Thursdays and on Sundays. I've offered to come to any of your houses, set up appointments with you to have communion. Over the pandemic, only about 25% of our membership have received communion once. I'm not saying you have to receive communion every week. I'm not even saying you have to receive it every month. But if we believe our faith is a physical faith, then we ought to receive Jesus' physical forgiveness. We ought to want to reach out and touch him. And so I'm challenging you. If you believe this, come receive Jesus' body and blood. And finally, the big picture idea I want you to see is the real problem. Like I mentioned in the children's message, there's a a disease and a symptom. And I think very often we focus on the symptom as more bad than the, the disease. See, these two women are are parallel and they show us both the symptom and the disease. Mark connects these two characters through a number of little literary devices that he has in this Mark and Sandwich. The first of those is that they're both women. It would have been unheard of to include so many women as main characters in your story at that time in the world's history. But Mark makes the point of having both women as main characters. He then also says that both of them were saved Uh, The Greek word he uses sozo, which is the word that the church uses throughout the New Testament to talk about salvation. It's translated in your English Bibles as healed, but the word there is literally saved. He said they were both saved. They were saved from a separation. The woman for 12 years of separation away from from all the people that loved her and her church. The girl suffering with separation of body and soul in death. And then finally, maybe most obviously, is the number 12 years. It doesn't advance the plot at all that you know that the girl is 12 years old and that the woman has been suffering for 12 years with a flow of blood. So whenever you see a detail in the story that doesn't advance the plot, you should focus on it and ask, why is it there? Mark is trying to show you that these two women are almost like two sides of the same coin. They're a picture of the human person. 
And while we might tend to focus on the problem of Jairus' daughter, that every one of us is dying, Jesus says, actually, the inside of the Markin sandwich is what's important. Focus on the fact that your problem is not ultimately that you're going to die, but that you are unclean. That for your whole life, 12 years, in the case of that girl, you were unclean. By nature, separated from God. By nature, separated from what it meant to be human in perfection. But that by reaching out and touching Jesus, you can be cleansed of that uncleanness. You can be cleansed of that sin. And therefore you can know that the promise is that when you die, Jesus will show up at your grave and he will take you by the hand and he will raise you up into new life. So come to Jesus, reach out and touch him. Receive the forgiveness that has already been given to you. And then believe the promise that though you die, you will live. Then on the last day, Jesus will come and take you into a place that far surpasses this place. He will fix everything that is wrong. He will undo all evil. He will give you back a hundred times whatever you have lost. That's the promise of the Christian faith. So fall at Jesus' feet. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for healing us of our sin, for allowing us to reach out and to touch you, to know you and to be known by you, to be known by your church, the people who you indwell, to be be seen in the way that you saw that woman. We pray that that promise of forgiveness also give us comfort in the fear that we have of our death. By nature, every one of us fears death. We live in fear. But when we remember what you have done for us, we have comfort and security and certainty. Remind us of this forgiveness regularly through word and through sacrament. In your name, amen.